Hey guys, this is a quick reminder that the two best ways you can support the show are by one, leaving a rating and comment on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This is like foreplay for the algorithm because it revs it up and makes our show appear higher in searches. And number two, you can subscribe to Auxoro Premium at auxoro.supercast.com, where for five bucks a month you get bonus episodes and more exclusive content. Thank you for however you choose to support the show. Do you feel that? Do you feel that? That's the power of recording in nature. I'm a different beast when I am in nature. I feel different. I am different. I'm one with the soil. When my bare feet hit that soil, I am a different person. When my feet hit the soil, I'm just, I just change, you know, like when I'm out in nature, like everything just gets, I feel centered, you know, I just feel, um, centered. I feel like I'm just myself. I'm in it. I'm in it. Like we're in, there's, everything's made of stars, including me. And just, I'm surrounded by nature of stars. Everything is just one. I am recording this episode, this solo episode of The Ox. By the way, I'm going to be a white L.A. girl for this episode. That was my attempt at a white girl accent from somewhere outside of L.A. Grew up somewhere in SoCal. I've transformed. I'm recording this episode in nature. That's right. I am in Canada, my first time in Canada about an hour and a half outside of Montreal in a river house. You could probably hear the river running in the background. And I was in the sauna today. I was in the sauna today. It was fucking hot. There's a sauna right outside this river house, which is <laughs> probably the only reason that I booked this booked this retreat house for the weekend. Just came up here with my brother. We're just going to sleep in the sauna. For seven days straight. Get our heat exhaustion on. But no, I mean, we, we were looking around for houses just somewhere to get outside of the city. And we found this house. Really great price. Has a sauna on the river. And I was in the sauna for 30 minutes this morning, which does not sound like a lot. But we had that bitch blasting. We we had the oven. It's an oven wood fire sauna. So the the first two days we were kind of figuring out the sauna because it's all field. You normally when I go into a sauna, it's being run. It, it's part of another operation. It's part of a gym. It's part of a bathhouse. Someone else is controlling it. I go in. The temperature is already set, and that's it. I just sit down for the wood wood burning sauna when you have to do it yourself. You have to put the wood in the oven. You are playing with a bunch of these triggers and slides on the pipe. You're turning keys and notches to try to get the airflow just right to 
increase the temperature, but you don't want to, you don't want to close off the airway too much because then you won't have oxygen for the fire, but you want to, you want to get it just right. You're playing with the stove. There's a, basically this drawer at the bottom of the stove, this inlet that pulls out and it, it was cool because I had never made the sauna before. I'd, n- I'd never controlled that aspect of it. And we were trying to play with it the first day. It was probably around 140, 150 degrees the first day we got here. And we were like, all right, you know, we'll probably have to put some more wood in it tomorrow, play with the inlet, finesse it a little bit. The second day, probably had that bitch somewhere up around 170, 180 this time we pack the stove, but we also put in a lot of tinder and, and we packed the stove with smaller, but more pieces of wood. So we had a couple big blocks of wood in the stove the first couple of days. This time we got smaller pieces of wood, but stuffed it in more surface area, more, more places to burn. And then we also put the rocks on top of the stove because we were looking up how to, how to get more heat for the sauna. So Long story short, we figured it out today, and it was fucking blasting. And something happens to you when you're sitting in a sauna that's between 180 and 200 degrees for more than 15 minutes. I feel like you, when you force yourself to go past the 15, 20-minute point, you start to make a negotiation with your mind. You start to, you start to go places. You start to, I'm, I'm sitting in the sauna and I'm thinking, okay, this feels fucking intense. My heart rate was up. I, these thoughts started going in my head of, oh, you know, maybe this, this is bad for me. I'm gonna, something i'm gonna have a heart attack right now you know like like a lot of these irrational thoughts start to pop into my head when i'm doing difficult things to try to psych me out of it to to rationalize why i need to stop this physical activity and sometimes that happens you know when i'm working out or when i'm in the sauna or you know i'm I'm driving at night doing something scary or doing something difficult these irrational thoughts pop into my head And they try to get me to stop. And sometimes those thoughts are good. You know, if a stranger is approaching you (laughs) in a, in the middle of the woods outside of a cabin with no other house around for 20 miles, it's probably a good thing that your sensor is popping off saying, what the fuck is this guy doing here? But I'm safe in a sauna. I've been in saunas for around that length of time before this and and I wasn't approaching it like a record I just was kind of sitting in it but I know and I'd been in this temperature sauna before for long periods of time and I started freaking out a little bit like oh I gotta get out of here like what's going on and then I started relaxing into the tension and I am not by any means a sauna expert. I don't go in a sauna every day. I would like to have a sauna on my property wherever that is. When I move from New York, it's difficult to have a sauna inside an apartment. 
but I'm, I'm by no means a sauna expert. There, there are people that are much harder than me in the sauna game for sure. So I'm not trying to talk about this. Like I'm like, oh, stay hard, like be in the sauna for four hours straight. I'm, I'm not trying to come off like that at all. So I hope, I hope it's not, but for me, I was very uncomfortable around the 20, 22 minute mark. And this thing started to happen when I was relaxing into the tension. And the best way I can describe this is what a free diving instructor taught me when I was in Egypt. And so I went free diving for the first time and my only time. This was about a month ago. I was in Dahab, Egypt, and... One of the things that you have to do when you're free diving is you hold your breath. It's not like scuba diving. You you hold your breath. You have this period of relaxed breathing before where you're trying to slow down your heart rate. You're trying to ease the tension throughout your entire body from your head to your toes. And you use your breath to do that. And you hold your breath before you go into the water. You do static breath holds, dry static breath holds. And... One of the things that my instructor taught me, Arseny, guy from Russia, very nice. Arseny said, okay, when you feel the tension, when you feel the contractions rise up, because when you hold your breath, you have involuntary contractions, you can actually relax into that. So every time you feel a contraction, feel it, don't ignore it, it's information. But feel the diaphragm contract and then relax even more into that. Use that spike in tension to sink back down to a place where you can continue. And this was super helpful advice because I felt while I was free diving, I, you feel the, the contraction. And especially as someone who's doing it the first time. You're going down, you're underwater. It starts to get darker and darker and darker. The The deepest dive I did for the first time was 10 meters so it's I'm not I'm not really going down that far but the the thoughts start to start to pop up into your head like oh my god like my diaphragm's contracting every you know for 27 years before this day contractions meant for me that I had to breathe that was a signal that I had to breathe and now I'm I'm not ignoring that signal but I'm trying to relax into it and push past it and get to a place where I'm continuing the dive and so I carried this from the static dry hold to the the free dive and i'm bringing this up because that is the way i would describe relaxing into the tension in the sauna it's a different version of it because when you're free diving you're holding your breath you actually have physical contractions in your diaphragm But in the sauna, I was having mental contractions like, oh, you know, oh, this is I need to get out. This is too hot. This isn't good for me. Like all these things that I knew weren't true, but were still popping in my head, these mental contractions. And then every time I would feel that I would recognize it and then relax into it. And then after about 30 minutes, I was like, all right, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get out. That was enough. That was good. I, I feel like I pushed through to a good place. And that is super useful. That that type of thinking in life for me 
is very useful. And I don't always reach the goal. I Sometimes I give up at the first contraction, the first mental contraction, first physical, first emotional contraction, whatever it is. Sometimes I give up at the first one and then, you know, later that day, I'm like, oh, fuck, like I, I tapped out way too early. Like as soon as I felt pressure, I just fucking tapped. I didn't I didn't feel around with the pressure. I didn't become curious about it. I didn't I didn't let it manifest that I, I didn't I, I didn't do anything. I just I immediately felt the pressure and I just fucking tapped out. But there are times when I feel those contractions and then I'm able to relax back into the uncomfortability and then you feel it again and then you relax back and then you feel it and you relax back. And every time you're able to feel a contraction, to feel a point of tension and relax into it, that makes you stronger that makes me stronger mentally physically emotionally i'm able to push past places that i'm not able to achieve and and to me that is the beauty of doing difficult things it's not necessarily the end goal of completing the workout completing something feels good whether it's you know getting through one year in a relationship or getting through a difficult six-week workout program getting in a sauna you know doing a free dive the the end result feels good but the the true the true release the true pleasure that i feel is in those moments during the thing that i'm doing where i could have given up like like God or nature, whoever's like offering me a point to give up. They're like, here, do you want to do it? You want to give up? Like, this is it. This is a contraction. And I see it and I feel it. And I'm like, ah, now nah, I'm good. I'm, I'm going to go for another two minutes. And then God comes back and he's like, what about this one? Here's another one. Do you want to, you want to give up now? And I'm like, mm, not now. Not now. I'm going to keep going. And then when you get through to like the seventh or the eighth one and you're still going, that's when it fucking feels amazing. Cause you're just like at the first, the first points of tension, those first contractions, like it gets really, you're just like, ah, like, you know, it, it, it can be tough to push past it. Cause you naturally you want to just give in when you feel that tension. But then, it starts to become easy. Like instead of you feeling like you're carrying 300 pounds on your back, you're just like dishing it off like a pass in basketball. Like God passes you the ball. Like you want to give up? Here's the ball. And then you pass it back. You're like, nah, I'm okay. You have this one, God. You give up. Like I gave up on you because you're not real. That got really real. What the fuck do I know though? It's the one thing that I don't enjoy about the atheism atheism community is that they are so sure that there's no God. There are, not all atheists are like this. And I, I consider myself a de facto atheist where I am reasonably sure that God doesn't exist. I acknowledge there's a possibility that God does exist, but I live my life as though he doesn't. De facto atheist, as Richard Richard Dawkins defines it. But there are some people 
that are as sure that God doesn't exist as people who believe in God are sure that he does exist. And to me, those are two sides of the same coin. If you are absolutely sure of the absence of something, you are a believer. You believe in the believing in the absence of God, absolutely in the absence of God and believing absolutely in the presence of God are the same shit. It's not the same outcome, but it's the same energy. It's interesting. It's like if if you if you are an atheist and you are uncovering pitfalls in religion and you are educating yourself you're reading about it, you're learning about it, you're talking to people who believe in religion, who believe in God, who don't believe in God, believe in multiple gods. And you, you're learning all this shit about it and you're exposing what you believe to be holes in the God theory. It seems like some people expose those holes in the God theory and they plug those holes completely with the absence of God theory, with the with the no God theory. If that if that makes sense, it's like you you don't leave you don't leave room in the holes. They're they're always to me. If you're going to call yourself a curious person, if you if you're cur- if you're curious if you're truly curious about any subject about God or rivers or building wooden decks like the one that I'm sitting on right now, you never really get to an absolute conclusion. There's always something new to learn. There's always room for you to expose something about the craft or about yourself or other people expose it to you when they teach you something. You find something out. You've been doing it one way your entire life or you've been believing it one way your entire life and someone else is like, oh, hey, like this exists too. And you're like, oh, shit. I didn't even fucking know. So to me, that doesn't. It, <laughs> it's it's kind of hilarious, and I've been guilty of this. I've been, you know, like everyone, everyone goes through certain phases when they switch. I went. I went through this super not super conservative but a more conservative phase in my political views when trump came into office because it was just funny to me it was fun for me to root for trump because everyone else hated him and my parents were into him and i was like yeah like you know fucking let's go let's go republicans let's go conservatives and i was like very hard into that and then I just realized like how much ideology actually forces you to think in line with things that you don't actually believe in or there's no evidence in. And and so I I slowly shifted from being this over conservative thinker to oh it's conservative and like bouncing back and forth between liberal conservative to just being like I'm fucking done with ideology. I'm done with defining ideas by a side of the aisle. 
And I'm not going to, if someone asks me, it's such a bad question. Like if someone asks you, are you liberal or are you conservative? It's like, give me a topic. Say, say border control, say abortion, say creativity, say fossil fuels, say electric cars, say, ask me about my opinion on something or tell me your opinion and I can comment on it. But don't, don't say, are you like which team are you on because then you're getting nowhere and then the really fucked up thing is then when when you're on a team you start to say you believe in things that you really don't just so you can align with that team it's fucking weird it's we it's weird cuz you see like how how crazy is that that the the concept of politicians taking sides because we all know that politicians lie to us and every two years four years whatever election cycle you want to go by we show up to vote for the best liar and it's not necessarily their fault it's it's your responsibility to take charge of what you say, but I would say the the fault lies in the system because it, it's such a weird thing. We choose politicians all the way from local town hall reps up to president the same way we choose prom kings and prom queens. Like, the level of deception and hurt feelings and rivalry in a in voting for a prom king in a popularity contest is the same. It's just that times a million for a presidential election. It's the same basis of becoming elected. It's through popularity. What other job do people get through popularity contest through voting it's literally however many people vote whoever gets the most votes gets the job normally you go through tons and tons you for a high level job you might go through six step job interviews getting vetted by multiple people and somehow for the president of the united states when someone was like do you think we should do that? Do you think we should elect someone by a panel and have them be vetted through many, many, many layers? And only then can we have people become the president. Someone suggested that and everyone else was like, nah, let's just vote on it. Let's just fucking throw some, we'll just write a name on a slip of paper and we'll just fucking mail it in and then we'll count it up. And then whoever it is, where it is, it's fucking insane when you think about it. Because the skills to win a popularity contest only mean that you're good at being popular. It doesn't mean you're a good president. Whatever being a president means, I have no idea what I would say the skill set of a good president. If, if it was me, if I was trying to pick the skill set of a good president, I would say the best thing I could do is pick people around me because I'm such a dumb fuck when it comes to politics that the best thing I could do is get good at picking people to delegate to 
and choosing the people to surround me in the cabinet because that would decide the outcome of my presidency because my knowledge base will be strengthened by those people. And they're the ones that have experience in it. So I don't like, I don't know what the job of a president is, but I can tell you that it's not being popular. That's what being president has become. It's been, what are your ratings? What percentage of the country likes you? Are you popular? Good presidents should be unpopular, deeply unpopular. There are a lot of great leaders that aren't, uh, like, like people don't like because they make tough decisions. The mark of a great leader isn't having a high approval rating. The mark of a great leader may actually be having a lower approval rating. <laughs> Not saying that Joe Biden is a great leader because he has a low approval rating. I'm, I'm saying that when you make tough decisions, that inherently makes you unpopular. If you're willing to make a decision for what's good for the people over what's the most popular decision, what people want you to do, what's going to do well in the polls. If you, if you just make the decision for what it's worth and for what's going to have the best outcome for the American people, a lot of times that could make you very deeply unpopular. And so in many ways, we're running presidential elections that are electing the people to office who are the exact opposite of what the job requires of what the job needs to be performed at a high level. Maybe The Rock should be president. I don't know. I saw him. I, I watched the movie Pain and Gain last night with The Rock and Mark Wahlberg. The Rock is fucking gigantic. I just said the president should not be elected based on popularity and now i'm just like yeah the rock should be president he's fucking huge <laughs> maybe we'd probably do better if we picked presidents just based off of who was fucking jacked that would be a better i i guarantee like i would bet so much money that if we just had whoever was the president was just the one who looked the most jack in the best shape just like the sexiest person wins the presidency and that's who we're gonna go with just just make it a bodybuilding contest that would probably have a better outcome than people standing in a semicircle during the primaries just giving these fucking monotonous bullshit answers of what they think on abortion that are not actually what they think it's just some contrived some contrived fucking answer that people wrote for you and you're just parroting it on stage trying to you know you're you're pausing trying to make it sound like you wrote it someone's asking you about abortion and you're a politician on stage and you're like you want to know what i think about abortion you really want to know what i think i think we should abort you for asking that question you should be aborted for 
asking the future president of the United States about abortion because that puts me in a tough position. Because if I tell the truth, people aren't going to like me very much. So I'm going to say this answer that some 24-year-old out of Harvard wrote for me that has no life experience, but we hired him because fuck. Ivy League students in my campaign make me hard as a rock. And speaking of The Rock, he should be president. He should be the one, not me. I think we, we would get better answers. We, we, we would get better information if we if instead of asking presidential candidates questions that they're just not going to give genuine answers to or if they do it'll be like the 30 second soundbite bullshit they should just pose on stage like bodybuilders like like imagine if you ask Ted Cruz you know what do you think about abortion he's like what do i think about abortion this is what i think about abortion <laughs> yeah yeah hold it Hold it, turn it, turn it, oh, abort this motherfucker. Yeah. And for those of you who are just listening to the podcast, I'm flexing like a bodybuilder, squeezing my pecs together. Then the rock just gets on stage and blows him all the way, blows him all away. Just fucking, why, why can't the rock just come out and say he's on steroids? Like no one cares. I'm reading, and I talked about uh, on a recent podcast, the Balco scandal with Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, those guys juicing in the major leagues and the whole back and forth between Congress and the MLB front office and the players with the steroid scandal. And I understand that because you're performing, you're, you're, you're playing a sport with rules and steroids give you a clear advantage when you're in a competition to beat your opponent who's not on steroids. But in the movies, who fucking cares? Like, if you want to take steroids and get jacked, take steroids and get jacked. I don't know why The Rock has to be ambiguous when asked about steroids. And, you know, I don't know. I haven't read an, inter- an interview with the rock recently about steroids, but I know when all these guys get asked, like they're fucking gigantic in the movies and they're like, what's your workout regimen? And they're like, you know, I, uh, I bang it out hard in the gym. I drink my rock protein branded shake. And then I get nine and a half hours of sleep. It's like, I think you skipped over the wind straw there. Like, he's fucking huge. No one cares. Like, just say, I juice my face off and I make $50 million a movie and I'm taking the risk for myself and that's fine. No, like, I don't think anyone at The Rock came out and said, by the way, I'm on steroids. It would be in and out of the news in like 40 minutes. Literally, TMZ would put on an article and no, like literally everyone, 99% of the population would be like, we know. It's fine. 
But yeah, I watched the movie Pain and Gain with The Rock and Mark Wahlberg. And fuck, like, it's... I, I enjoyed the movie. It was it was directed by Michael Bay. It it was a very simple, straightforward plot about these bodybuilders at a gym that fuck over this guy. They they steal all his money, get him to sign it over. People end up dying, getting murdered, and all this shit. But it's just like these these bodybuilders are just sick of their life not matching their bodies. And they say that in a movie. They're flexing in front of the mirror and Mark Wahlberg's like, damn, we look like we have a fucking million dollar body and we have $4 in our pocket. Like, we deserve more. We deserve better. And then they do highly illegal things to acquire that money. But there, But there is something romantic about taking steroids and i'm saying this as someone who's never experimented with steroids never taken testosterone boosters anything like that i'm open to it in the future you know as my testosterone starts to decline i'm sure i will explore some options when i'm older but just looking at this movie as a pure just a story of these guys who get on steroids are jacked as fuck taking on the world there is something romantic even though it's extremely unhealthy there's something romantic about just fucking juicing to the gills and just there's no end there's no end to it your your goal is just to get bigger and it doesn't matter if you're the biggest fucking person in the world you look in the mirror and you're still small and that's probably why so many guys die because they're on drugs, but they're never big enough. Like you keep, you keep going, you keep going, you keep going. You see the guys today who are bodybuilding and they look like fucking aliens. Like at least back in the day, people like Arnold Schwarzenegger, of course they were fucking huge, but there was a humanness to their bodies. They were ripped, but you could still see, you know, it, it Arnold Schwarzenegger still looked like in every man's type of guy. He was a fucking huge, just absolute gigantic, muscled up specimen, but he still had like this everyday f- man feel about him. Now you see these guys on stage and they look like fucking aliens. Like their ab veins have ab veins and there's no body fat. Their, their, their skin is just stretched straight over their fucking quads and biceps. There's no middle layer in between. And to me, yeah, I mean, it's amazing what these guys are able to do, but they just take it to such another fucking level. And in this movie, even though it's about crime, you also see it's like a it's cool because it's a small window into the psyche of some of these guys. Not not that everyone who takes steroids has a huge ego. There are a lot of guys that take it and they know their limits and they compete and once they retire, they retire, they're able to let it go. But you, you see in pain and gain, you see like this window into the psyche of a steroid user who looks at himself in the mirror and like just 
nothing's ever good enough and they're looking at their fucking body and they're these highs and lows of I feel great, I feel like shit, I feel great, I feel like shit. And now that I'm saying it, it sounds a lot like just living in everyday life. You feel good, you feel like shit, but the steroids seem to accentuate that. They seem to bring all of that to another level and they lose focus of reality they they lose track of reality and pain and gain they're trying to be someone they're not they're trying to be like someone they don't feel like with the steroids is is a good way to put it the the steroids in this movie they're not they they don't have self confidence even though they look like fucking ripped ass motherfuckers. Mark Wahlberg, probably like I don't know how tall Mark Wahlberg is five seven five eight. I know he's pretty short. He's probably two twenty five in this movie. Like fucking ripped. The Rock is ripped. Um, there's another actor in the movie who's ripped. I don't know his name, so I apologize to him. But uh, he like these three guys. They're Juicing and working out, trying to obtain a reality and obtain a sense of self that they don't have. And the scheme, the plot that they devise to steal money from this guy, what they do is they basically beat this, beat the shit out of this guy until he signs over all of his assets and they steal and and they take this guy's assets and Mark Wahlberg is living in this guy's house and he's living inside a house that isn't his just like if you if you look at Mark Wahlberg's body it's like yes the body is his but he doesn't feel like he deserves it you can see in the film he has a very low sense of he has a big ego but he has low self esteem same thing with the house like he's living in this house deep down he knows like he doesn't live up to this house he, he had to steal this house. He didn't earn this house. There's a lot of allegories back and forth in the movie. And I, and I think it's cool. I think it's, I think it's shot really well. And steroids and crime and like these guys are pieces of shit in the movie, but you can see how badly they want to be successful. The Rock plays this guy who's dumb as fuck. He's a cokehead. He just runs through all the money they sold in two weeks. Mark Wahlberg's more established. He's he's the ringleader of everything. And then the other guy kind of goes along with Mark Wahlberg. He's kind of in between The Rock and Mark Wahlberg. But like you see how badly they want success. And if some, if they just had someone to say, like, you dumb fucks, you can get what you're looking for legally if you decide to take another path. Like, th- there are other things to put your energy into. And these guys devise this plan. They, you know, somehow execute it. And apparently it's based on a real story, which I didn't know. There are actually three bodybuilders that they showed at the end that devised this plot and now they're in jail or or have been put to death because of all the murder and shit. But, like, they... They... They applied the discipline of working out 
to committing heinous crimes. Like when you work out, you're trying to get through a set, you're getting a pump, then it gets uncomfortable and you keep going. And, you know, pain and gain, that's the name of the movie. You have to go through pain to gain it. And they devise this whole plot to just fucking wreck this guy's life. And they encountered all of these points of, you know, like, this isn't going well, you know, we have to do this, you know, they encountered all these speed bumps, but they got through the pain, like the pain within their plot, they were pushing through it, like the pain in the gym. And they were applying that mindset to crime, to criminal activity. And eventually it fucking gets out of hand. But you you feel the the humanized aspect of it because everyone wants that shit. I want that shit. I want to be successful. I want to drive nice cars. I want to live in a nice house. I want to have all the things that are cool. I want to, I love podcasting. I love producing episodes. I love what I do. And I know there are shortcuts to financial success. I know there are shortcuts to flashy success, even legal ones that won't leave me fulfilled. And I have nothing against making money. I came from a, a great family that uh, my parents are well financially. Like I, I I admire people who build wealth. I think it's healthy to want to create wealth, but there are shortcuts to doing that that are not the most fulfilling and that it's not always the answer. Like, the one thing that they fucked up with is the the biggest thing I would argue that they fucked up with in the movie is that, you know, Mark Wahlberg was working at this gym and he was doing well. He was bringing in clients. He was making a good amount of money. He was coming up with creative ideas. He was he gave strippers free memberships at the gym he was working at. So that would attract more guys to go to the gym and the memberships tripled in three weeks. He told he looked the guy in the face in the movie, the, the guy um, who hired him at the gym and said, I'm going to triple your membership. And Mark Wahlberg did that legally before he got into any of the crime shit. And he found that he was working in a place where he could work out for free. He loved getting jacked, shooting steroids in his ass, like all this shit. And he found a place that where he could do that. And then he fell victim to the envy of one of his clients because he had a client, the guy who eventually ended up almost killing and ripping off with the two other bodybuilders. That guy was one of his clients and he saw the life. He asked him about the money. It was like this guy was one step further or a bunch of steps further financially than Mark Wahlberg, but like steps further that he saw and Mark Wahlberg forgot like you, you forget that in the movie that Mark Wahlberg was becoming successful at this gym. He was making money. He was doing what he wanted to do. And then he decided to throw that all away. And I identify with that a lot because I see that a lot now in other things where I am moving forward in podcasting, you know, acquiring audience members, speaking to really fucking cool guests who I'm very grateful for. And then I see other people who are making more money or they have better studios or just just all these things. And they're on a different path. They're on a different journey. But I'm comparing that point of their journey to one point in mine. And it's just comparing apples to oranges. And it's always 
when I feel jealous, when I feel envious, I know something is off in my psyche. Like I know that I'm not in a good place because I'm just fucking like searching for something that's not there. I'm like, and envy, envy isn't dangerous because of what it makes you strive for. Envy isn't dangerous because it makes you strive for bad shit. It's dangerous because it makes you forget all the shit you've already done. Like you could be so successful. You could you could have a great family, you could have a house and kids and have a fucking sick job, sick cars, like you feel fulfilled and then all of a sudden some guy drives by in a better car and you just forget about everything for a split second. Like you're like, "Ah, oh, like I need that." And you fuck it, you're like you forget you're sitting in a fucking Ferrari. That's the danger of envy. It's not it's not so much the the shit it makes you do it's the shit it makes you forget it's all the the things that just go out the fucking window in your mind so watch pain and gain i mean it did not get great reviews we we were looking up the movie before my brother looked up the movie said it didn't get great reviews i don't know exactly what it got because i didn't want to look but i said fuck it it's the rock it's mark Wahlberg. we kind of wanted to watch a silly you know not a very dramatic movie like dramatic things happen in the movie but i didn't want to watch like the fuck like shawshank redemption or anything like that i was was not in the mood for a heavy movie so it looked pretty light and ended up enjoying it there's there's levels to the enjoyment of the movie now that i'm thinking about it it's this the steroids and the crime are on the surface but there's a lot of lessons in the shit that goes on speaking of lessons and shit that goes on One book that I have kept by me for a while now is called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. The War of Art. Break through the blocks and win your inner creative battles. And I keep this book around and I read through it when I'm feeling blocked and even when I'm feeling good, I'll pick it up and just read a passage and it's built like that. It's built to just fucking pick up and skim through and you find different categories and you can just dive into one and, and put it back down. And it gives me inspiration. It gives me the willpower and the fortitude to push through the resistance creatively, physically, whatever I'm trying to do that day, whatever's on my mind. And I'm going to pick out a reading from the book. Let's see here. The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. This one is page 69. Perfect. I didn't even try to do that. But here we are with faces in crotches. We're all pros already. All of us are pros in one area. Our jobs. We get a paycheck. We work for money. We are professionals. Now, are there principles we can take from what we're already successfully doing in our workaday life and apply to our artistic aspirations? What exactly are the qualities that define us as professionals? One, we show up every day. We might do it only because we have to to keep from getting fired, but we do it. We show up every day. Two, we show up no matter what. 
In sickness and in health, come hell or high water, we stagger into the factory. We might do it only so as to not let down our co-workers or for other less noble reasons. But we do it. We show up, we show up no matter what. Number three, we stay on the job all day. Our minds may wander, but our bodies remain at the wheel. We pick up the phone when it rings. We assist the customer when he seeks our help. We don't get home until the whistle blows. Number four, we are committed over the long haul. Next year, we may go to another job, another company, another country, but we're still working. We'll still be working until we win the lottery, until we hit the lottery. We are part of the labor force. Number five, the stakes for us are high and real. This is about survival, feeding our families, educating our children. It's about eating. Number six, we accept remuneration for our labor. We're not here for fun. We work for money. Number seven, we do not over-identify with our jobs. We may take pride in our work. We may stay late and come in on weekends, but we recognize that we are not our job descriptions. The amateur, on the other hand, over-identifies with his avocation, his artistic aspiration. He defines himself by it. He is a musician, a painter, a playwright. Resistance loves this. Resistance knows that the amateur composer will never write his symphony because he is overly invested in its success and over-terrified of its failure. The amateur takes it so seriously it paralyzes him. We master the technique of our job. We master the technique of our jobs, excuse me. Number nine, we have a sense of humor about our jobs. Number ten, we receive praise or blame in the real world. Now consider the amateur, the aspiring painter, the wannabe playwright. How does he pursue his calling? One, he doesn't show up every day. Two, he doesn't show up no matter what. Three, he doesn't stay on the job all day. He is not committed over the long haul. The stakes for him are illusory and fake. He does not get money and he over-identifies with his art. He does not have a sense of humor about failure. You don't hear him bitching, This fucking trilogy is killing me. Instead, he doesn't write his trilogy at all. The amateur has not mastered the technique of his art, nor does he expose himself to judgment in the real world. If we show a poem to our friend and our friend says, it's wonderful, I love it, that's not real world feedback. That's our friend being nice. Nothing is, a, is as empowering as real world validation, even if it's for failure. The first professional writing job I ever had after 17 years of trying was a movie called King Kong Lives. And I partnered and... And uh, I and my partner at the time, Ron Shusset, a brilliant writer and producer who also did Alien and Total Recall, hammered out the screenplay for Dino De Laurentiis. We loved it. We were sure we had a hit. Even after we'd seen the finished film, we, cert we were certain it was a blockbuster. We invited everyone we knew to the premiere, even rented out the joint next door for a post-triumph blowout. Get there early, we warned our friends. The place will be mobbed. Nobody showed. There was only one guy in the line besides our guest, and, and he was muttering something about spare change. In the theater, our friends endured the movie in mute stupefaction. When the lights came up, they fled like cockroaches into the night. Next day came the review in Variety. Ronald Shusett and Stephen Pressfield. We hope that these are not their real names for their parents' sake. Fuck. When the first week's grosses came in, the flick barely registered. Still, I clung to hope. Maybe it's only tanking in urban arenas, in urban areas. Maybe it's playing better in the burbs. I motored to an edge city multiplex. A youth manned the popcorn booth. How's King Kong lives, I asked. He flashed thumbs down. Miss it, man. 
It sucks. I was crushed. Here I was, 42 years old, divorced, childless, having given up all my normal human pursuits to chase the dream of being a writer, and now I finally got my name on a big-time Hollywood production starring Linda Hamilton, and what happens? I'm a loser, a phony, my life is worthless, and so am I. My friend Tony Keppelman snapped me out of it by asking if I was going to quit. Hell no. Then be happy. You're where you wanted to be, aren't you? So you're taking a few blows. That's the price for being in the arena and not on the sidelines. Stop complaining and be grateful. That's when I realized I had become a pro. I had not yet had a success, but I had a real, real failure. But I had had a real failure. Fuck, dude. I've been podcasting for four years, and I think sometimes I'm like, how have I not fucking made it yet? Four years I've been doing this. Every week I release an episode, multiple times a week. And then you have someone like Stephen Pressfield who does it for 17 years and is writing about it. And it puts my ass in place where I'm like, yeah, I I am literally still a baby in podcasting. I am I am four years old in podca- podcasting. I'm I'm literally just starting to support my own head on my feeble neck in the podcast game. It is absolutely ridiculous to expect massive success on a broad level three to four years into a creative pursuit. And it's probably good that it doesn't happen because you see a lot of people who hit success, they hit the lottery early on through podcasting or movies or whatever, and they don't know how to deal with it because they haven't actually had failures leading up to that. They don't have a track record and they have this fucking massive show and it burns out, which is why I think, um, which is why I think Joe Rogan does so well and he's done so well for so long is because he had so many failures and he had been podcasting and doing other shit for so long in acting and in comedy before the Joe Rogan experience became a thing. And I believe he started podcasting after the age of 40. So he had early, he, he already had all this shit under his belt. And when the Joe Rogan experience hit, it, it was a success built on top of a foundation of failure and experience. So four years is fucking nothing. And I tell myself that when, when I get into these, these, these modes of, I, what we were talking about before comparing my journey to someone else's when I'm like, Oh fucking like Logan Paul's 28 years old. And he has the number one podcast in the world. And I fucking love impulsive. I, I, it's a great podcast, but I have to I snap myself out of it and be like, that's not me. That's, that's not my journey. That's not my experience. That that's just not the path. That's not the path for me. That's someone else's path. That's his path. That's her path. That's their path if you want to be uh, all pronouns inclusive. That's that's they them. That's they them's path. Let they them. Let them be. You know? Which is why podcasting is so fucking great because it doesn't matter, you know, not to sound cliche, but who, who gives a fuck what skin color or what pronouns you use or sexuality, whatever. If you can bang out a banger of an episode on a podcast, I will listen to it. People will listen to it. I respect that. If you can hold a conversation, if you can hold an episode and talk 
and be interesting and ask great questions. It doesn't fucking matter what you look like or what you were born with. You are in a community of other podcasters that will listen to you. And a lot of people that listen to this podcast don't have a fucking clue what I look like because they don't watch the YouTube videos. Maybe they'll check out the Instagram. But still, podcasting podcasting will always be an audio experience first. That is what is great about it. It is an audio-based show. As long as you can speak, as long as you can talk on a microphone, you can hone your craft, you can become more comfortable, you can think of topics, you can hone that shit and become good and put in the work and you know go through the war. And 17 years later, maybe you'll look up and have your first real failure. But I don't feel like a failure. And a lot of that is because of you guys who tune in. So thank you for listening to this episode of The Aux. If you would like bonus episodes, you can go to auxoro.supercast.com. I release bonus episodes there every month. You can also submit topics and questions for the podcasts. And it helps support me, support the show, put out more episodes. You know, it's 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 a vote of confidence in me and in the content. And it's five bucks a month. And I appreciate every single cent of it because five dollars goes a fucking long way nowadays. It, it really does. You can get an entire catalog of Netflix movies for thirteen dollars a month or whatever it is now. So. $5 is a good chunk of change to give someone per month, and I appreciate it. You can also rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. That helps us appear higher in searches. And also, listening is enough. That is amazing. So thank you for tuning in. Thank you for being part of this experience. I'm going to go bask in the waning sunlight of the day. I love you, and I will talk to you guys next time.